From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The Gators made a ton of noise last week in the Big Apple, highlighted by Chris Chioza's buzzer beater that set the garden on fire. Unfortunately, the road ended in the Elite Eight, and Florida came up just short of their sixth Final Four. But Mike White's team turned a lot of heads in year two, and we'll take a retrospective look back at the season in just a few minutes with FloridaGators.com senior writer Chris Harry. The big breaking news of the week was the hiring of Cam Newbowers, Florida's new women's basketball coach, and you'll hear his story told firsthand later in today's show. But first, with spring football serving as a backdrop, the Gators held their annual Pro Day this week where they showcased all of their draft-eligible prospects to NFL coaches and scouts. Today we're beginning a series of conversations with some of the biggest names moving from the swamp on to the next level, and you'll hear from at least one former Gator every week between now and the draft. But getting back to Pro Day, one of the most impressive performances belonged to linebacker Jared Davis, who stunned the massive crowd with a vertical leap that would have topped every linebacker at this year's NFL Combine. After an ankle injury kept him out of that Combine, we asked the Georgia native what it meant to be able to perform so well on Tuesday. It meant a lot, man. It felt great to be able to finally come out here and run around with my boys again, man. I I've missed it. You know, I missed the last bowl game, missed a couple of games this season. It was really hard for me to, to have to sit out like that and, and miss those opportunities. But really excited to come out here and work again, man. Just come out here and run around and just have fun like we do all the time. So much of this process is telling teams the kind of person you are and what you're all about. When you're injured, how much more important is that? And with the combine, all these other things, when you couldn't necessarily do what you wanted to do on the field, how important were those interviews and those meetings that you had? I think those interviews were the utmost importance. You know, regardless of if I was able to work out or not, you know, those interviews are an opportunity for me to sit down with the people that are ultimately going to be, you know, making sure I'm playing every day, you know, every Sunday and practicing and you know, able to continue my dream of playing this game and to be able to just go and have an opportunity to sit down with those people and really let them know who I am off the field versus what they see on tape was just just a prime opportunity for me and I and I you know I thrived. I know how important the relationships are to you that you built in this team, especially with guys like Alex. To be going through this together at the same time, how much easier has it made it having those guys with you during this process? It makes it so much easier, man. You feel like you're almost back out at practice, you know, <laughs> with Coach Shannon and Coach Mack and everybody, you know. But um, to come out here and be able to work with them boys, man, it just it means everything, you know. Just like I said, being able, just having to miss those last couple of games like that and to be able to come back out here and work with them, man, just it made things so much easier, so much smoother. Coach Collins, Coach Shannon, Coach Mack, what have all of those guys that you've been able to play for, what have they done for you to get you ready for this? What, what, what advice have they given you? You know, mentally they helped me grow up, man. They helped me develop uh, myself into a, a better young man who I feel like a very valuable asset to a lot of teams, you know. Um, and, you know, just being able to see them and see what kind of example they set in the meeting room and around the buildings and everything like that, you know, I really, you know, ate up what, you know, the information they were giving us and I was able to, you know, become who I am today. And I really have to thank Coach Muschamp and his staff, though, for bringing me here, man, because, you know, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be a Gator. It's great guys. You've got the benefit of having so many former teammates that are already at the next level. Which of those guys have you leaned on during this process and what kind of advice have they given you? You know, a lot of guys, they just tell me to just do 
you know, do what I do and just be the guy you are. You know, don't try to be anything new. Don't try to be anybody different. Just be the same athlete you are each and every day, and you'll be fine. And that's exactly what I did today. Just came out and, and worked hard like I do, and I I ran fast. I, I ran like hell. <laughs> and you jumped. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> When you're going to college, you get to decide where you go. You're in charge. Mm-hmm. For the first time, what's it like having that flipped around where you don't control ultimately where you land? It's crazy, man. It's almost an eerie feeling, you know. And you have to kind of take it one day at a time. And you have to take it with a grain of salt because if you try to look at the big picture too much, it's going to it's gonna cloud your vision. It's going to block you from success and, and ultimately progressing, you know. So I try so hard not to pay attention to it. Sometimes I look at, you know, what everybody's saying and what, you know, what's going on. But most of the time, you know, I just take it easy, hang on my family, hang on my my friends and just just doing what I do on a daily basis you know this this new this new chapter in my life doesn't have any effect on the type of person I am and it, and it, should, and it never will what's draft night going to be like for you have you thought a lot about what you're going to do what you're going to be thinking it's going to be exciting man I'm going to be with my family where I've been my whole life you know just staying home and and relaxing you know I, you know I got a phone call to head up to, to Philly but and I appreciate the, the opportunity to be able to come up there and sit with those guys but you know, I'm gonna stay home and I'm gonna spend the time with my family. You know, I, I watched the draft at home. I know what it looks like. I know what it feels like. And you know, it's been exciting every year. I watched that at home. So hopefully, it doesn't let me down this year. Now that your Gator career is behind you, what do you take away? What do you remember most about your time here at Florida? Um, just you know, the, the progress, man. Being with my guys, man, and just like actually yesterday, I took a you know stroll down memory lane, so to say. You know, I went down through uh, Fraternity Row mm-hmm. and, and just went over there by the Springs and went by the Keys and everything like that. Went down by Lake Alice, you know, just driving around and, and seeing what it's like, you know, and seeing what it was like to be out here. And it's, it's been so fun, man, just to, to be back on campus and just, just feel the energy of being a Gator once again, man. Well, wish you luck wherever the next level takes you. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you so much. It's never easy when a season comes to an end sooner than you want it to, but in the case of the NCAA tournament, 67 teams go through that process at some point between mid-March and early April. The Gators were so close to returning to the Final Four, but instead it's South Carolina representing the SEC in Arizona. While the disappointment is inevitable, we talked to Chris Harry about the run and what it means for the program going forward. It's funny, just some Twitter mentions and what have you about some people saying that's probably as good as they've felt in a long time about the end of a of a basketball season. Um, maybe that's because they think the program is obviously pointed in the right direction now and after two years under Mike White. You don't want to say the team overachieved because you always achieve what you achieve. That's what you are. And uh, at the same time, you know, Florida was a four seed and, you know, had a chance against a seven seed, the South Carolina Gamecocks, who they had beaten just, uh, I believe, you know, less than three weeks earlier. But uh, I think think we found out that South Carolina is one of those teams that just got hot at the end of the year. Have a, They have one of those players that can take you on a run in Sundarius Thornwell. I, th- I think the one of the most underrated players in the country. But uh, if you just if you look at what that team was a was able to do, I don't know what people's expectation were. I don't I don't know how how positive expectations were Adam heading into the postseason, given the the way the the regular season ended with the back to back losses to Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. But Florida played terrific basketball, obviously in in the regional in Orlando, and then just played one of the great games in in program history against Wisconsin. Um, they certainly weren't perfect in it, and by rights they probably should have lost that game. 
People will say it was a lucky shot. I, I say it was a great shot. It's one of the greatest shots in NCAA tournament history. If you mm-hmm. consider what Cristioza had to do in taking the ball and going, one, he was one of the fastest guys end to end in the country to begin with. But being able to do that through that Wisconsin defense, setting his feet and launching and putting that ball through the basket bottoms, uh, it reminded me of the Tyus Edney shot in 1995, UCLA against against Missouri. But I mean, if you think about it, also the the, the only reason they're in the Wisconsin's in that position is because they hit a pretty lucky shot with two and a half seconds left to go in regulation. But I don't think anyone walks away from from a 27-9 and nine season, second place in the SEC, run to the Elite Eight, feeling cheated in any way. Uh, Florida is in good hands with Mike White. They're going to have a, a pretty good team next year, I think. And it'll probably be very similar to this year's team in that they'll have some maturing and some growing and some developing to do along the way. But uh, they know how to do it now. They have experience in the postseason, uh, successful experience in the postseason, which is something that this team, you wouldn't have said about this team going there. They're inexperienced. Uh, Wisconsin has a lot more experience than what they beat Wisconsin. But uh, kudos to the Gators for how they how they finish strong, and there is a lot to look forward to now. When you look at this whole season now and, and put it together, what do you think are the biggest areas of growth? Where did you see the greatest strides from year one to year two, and then how does that translate to year three? Yeah, it's not even close. It's in team-first thinking. Every player from top to the bottom talked about that, whether it was Casey Hill or Devin Robinson or Chris Chioza. You know, all of them talked about how guys were playing with uh, element of agendas last year. And for the good of the team, they had to start thinking um, otherwise. And I, I go back to a moment in at Mississippi State uh, where Devin Robinson was just having a miserable offensive game. He was also on his way to grabbing 10 rebounds. And they were just trying to get him going because they knew he was frustrated on offense. But you know, they were winning the game. And uh, uh, one of the assistant coaches was, hey, D-Rob, what can we run right now to kind of get you going? He goes, I'm good, coach. I'm good, coach. We're winning the game. Let's just go. And he ends up with zero points and 10 rebounds in a game, I believe, or two points and 10. He might have hit a couple free throws or something. But that's maturity. That's development. Devin Robinson admit, admitted last year he, he had a little selfishness to him. Casey Hill the same way. Uh, Chris Chioza had a moment um, earlier on in the season where he just wasn't playing very well. He wasn't necessarily looking at himself as much as he should have been, and he he got a talking to about it, both from his coaches and actually from his parents. And he went and had a sit-down with Mike White and emerged from that, and he was phenomenal for the rest of the year. And I'll be honest with you, the coaches this year were looking to next year wondering, who, we don't have any stability of point guard. Is anyone saying that now? Knowing no. that Chris Chios is going to be handed the ball, he's not only an experienced point guard, he's a guy who's been productive, uh, successful. He's hit a big shot, obviously, and he's emerged as a leader in the locker room. And he'll be the, the front man, if you will, the Mick Jagger of, of this team next year, the face of the team, I would think, because of that shot. And um, there's some other things that have to happen, whether or not, uh, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with some of these other players. There's always attrition in the offseason. I believe Kayvon Allen will be back. He had a pretty good game at Madison Square Garden yeah. Friday night. Started yeah, off, did. I believe, one of eight and two of ten and ends up with 35 points, the most ever scored by a Gator in an NCAA tournament. But, um, you know, he, he's back. Uh, uh, Jalen Hudson, a player you haven't seen yet, Adam, a transfer for Virginia Tech. I think he's going to lead the team in scoring next year. Wow. And that's with the leading scorer coming back. So you're going to have to account for a wing guy in the front court. He's a 6'6", maybe combo guard uh, forward, and Kayvon Allen. The Gators are going to be an exciting team next year with Chris Chios in the backcourt. And then, of course, we got to see what happens with the uh, – Kavaris Hayes will obviously be back. You know, uh, Johnny Bunu and Devin Robinson obviously can come back for their senior year, but I, I think they have some decisions to make on some of those things. Bunu coming back from an injury and Devin Robinson, like he did last year, will test uh, his stock 
relative to the NBA and you know playing professionally somewhere if it comes to that. You mentioned Jalen Hudson. That's almost a uh, an additional member of your recruiting class because he's right. coming off a transfer that's year. Right. But you've also got a really highly rated class coming in of freshmen that are going to be very productive. Yeah, uh, ESPN has Florida's incoming freshman class ranked tenth in the country. It starts with uh, DeAndre Ballard. He's a six-six guard wow. from Atlanta. Uh, Mike White likes big guards. <laughs> Um, and that's a big change, too, from what we've seen. It's absolutely a big change. Billy Donovan was okay with small guards because he was one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he won big with small guards, whether it was Torian Green, Irving Walker, or, or you know going back to you know Eddie Shannon. And he was okay with that. Um, Mike White wants some bigger guys. He wants guys. He wants length. He wants to eventually be a, a, a team that presses every possession. That, that won the case with, with this team. Uh, all right, so there's DeAndre Ballard. Next, you have a front court player, Chase Johnson from West Virginia. He's about a 6'8", 6'9", real athletic, vertical leaper, decent three-point shooter. Um, I would say he's a he's a developmental player, but a guy who will play next season. He's not a guy you just know he's going to come in and redshirt right away. And then you have Isaiah Stokes, who's the brother of uh, Jarnell Stokes, who played at Tennessee, mm-hmm. so Gator fans will be familiar with him. And he's about 6'8", probably in the 280-pound range. Wow. He's coming off um, ACL surgery. He hurt himself in uh, in January down at playing at, at IMG Academy. Uh, so in essence, assuming John Ibunu comes back, uh, I didn't mention Dante Bassett, a guy who sat out. He had surgery. He, he got hurt, did something to his foot, a stress fracture in his foot last October. He's coming off uh, surgery. Um, is just now starting to be able to move around a little bit on a court and shoot, what have you. So three of your post players will be coming off season-ending surgeries in Igbunu and Bassett and Isaiah Stokes. So you, I wouldn't think that these guys would be at full strength in terms of the, the low post play until you know maybe December or right around when SEC season starts. Mm-hmm. But it, it's an intriguing collection of guys coming back. I can mention Keystone. I can mention uh, Gorjak Gak who certainly got a lot more minutes uh, in the NCAA tournament. And Eric Hester, the guard, who showed up every now and then, didn't play a lot down the stretch because, I mean, if the Gators are going to play three guards and they did a lot, he wasn't going to be one of them. Mm-hmm. If there is some attrition going on, certainly they'll sign somebody else, maybe look for a grad transfer if, if it depends on how many got how many openings they have. But um, here's the thing, Adam. They have momentum on the recruiting trail now. Um, sure. I think something that was used against them in recruiting was, who's this guy? He's never coached an NCAA tournament. Right. Well, now he's coached one, four yeah. games, and he's got a 750 winning percentage in <laughs> NCAA play, and people saw what he's what uh, Mike White is capable of and what the Gators are capable of. So there is momentum on that front as the Gators head into the offseason. No team looks the same from year to year, and Florida loses not just some seniors but some critical components to this year's squad that are going to have to be replaced next year. Yeah, uh, you look at – the four seniors that are exiting, Casey Hill, uh, Justin Leon, Canyon Berry, and Skylar Rimmer, the walk-on, um, you know, their legacy will be putting Florida back where Florida was supposed to be. I, I think Mike White will forever remember those guys and be indebted to them for putting two feet in the circle, whether it was Casey Hill, who fans could say whatever they want, but the team's not where they are without Casey Hill. His defense uh, on the perimeter, you know, his his speed, he, he was he was able to help Mike White play a lot of the ways Mike White wants to play. Mm-hmm. Um, Canyon Barry, his ability to accept, his willingness, excuse me, to accept a role as a guy who comes off the bench. He only started one game this season. That was senior night. Wow. Um, he was sixth man of the year in the SEC. I think people will forever remember also that block shot 
in sure. overtime. The Chris Chioza shot never happens if Canyonberry doesn't block that shot. So that's a memory that uh, that the people will certainly carry with them. Justin Leon, I don't think you can say enough about that guy. He's a guy who had a relationship with Mike White. Came here last year. Um, he was he had signed at Louisiana Tech. Came out of nowhere as a JUCO guy and became a bona fide Division One contributor. Really a role-playing starter, if you will. But, man, he made a lot of big three-point shots, didn't he, Adam, over, yeah. the, over the course of the season? A ton, yes, absolutely. Um, led the team in three-point shooting at 39.8%, almost four out of ten from distance. Um, so, And then finally, Skylar Rimmer's a guy who transferred from Stanford and really good behind-the-scenes guy who would help keep things together in the locker room. And, and again, I, I, I can't stress enough, Mike White has spoken about these guys and how they kind of redirected where things were last year, and they, were, of course, were prominent in that. And uh, and for that, they should be saluted and remembered. So the end of that season leads us directly into the start of a new era across the hall for yes. the Florida women's basketball program. Yes. We were both at the press conference, at a great reception for Cam Neubauer and what promises to be a new direction and, and a very hopeful one for the program. Well, let's start with the first thing. It's the 10th uh, basketball coach in Florida women's uh, history and the first man. Mm-hmm. That's different. Uh, <laughs> Scott Strickland, um, you know, stepping out of the box a little bit with his first hire as athletic director and um, really interesting story. Uh, people probably have already read about it or if they watched the press conference. Scott Strickland unearthed obviously a gem in, in Vic Schaefer and bringing him on at Mississippi State. And now they're in the Final Four. They were the How, worst team in the SEC five years ago. Now they're in the now Final, they're in Final four. four five years later. Mm-hmm. So obviously he has an eye on that, or at least had, was able to talk to some people that when he went looking for a successor to Amanda Butler. But he told the story of how uh, Mississippi State was hosting that one of their uh, regionals last year, and he got to see uh, uh, Belmont uh, play Michigan State and saw this young kid on the sidelines how animated he was, how animated, how into the game his players were on the bench, and how he conducted himself after a close loss to uh, to Michigan State. And um, he said, man, I'm, I'm going to file this guy away. If anyone ever calls me up and says they're looking for a women's basketball coach, uh, uh, I'm going to maybe mention this guy. Well, lo and behold, he comes to Florida. He's looking for a women's <laughs> basketball coach. And one of the first calls he makes is to Nashville and Belmont University, and here comes Cam Newbauer, a kid from uh, excuse me, a kid. Uh, he's thirty eight years old. Uh, <laughs> a kid to same, you. <laughs> he is a kid to me, absolutely. But he's same age as Mike White when he got here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's from Indiana, so he has basketball in his blood. Coached for the for men uh, at Siena. Coached men at Georgia. Uh, then moved over to the women's side under Andy Landers, a Hall of Famer on that in, in that sport. And then got a head coaching job at Belmont and last two seasons the NCAA tournament. Had the second longest winning streak in the country this year. I wonder who was first. Not sure, but Not they, sure. they may be on the verge of hoisting another championship trophy. <laughs> like, what is it, the 17th in a row or something <laughs> it's like that? A, it's a lot. Yeah, it's a but, lot. They, they but, may never lose again. But, but uh, uh, Cam Newbarrow doesn't have to worry about that. What he has to worry about is he inherits a team, and obviously, Adam, you, you were there for every game, 15-16 and 16 team, mm-hmm. uh, 11th in the SEC, under scholarship right now in terms of roster and what have you. So he's got some things to do relative to um, digging in and, and reestablishing culture reestablish inroads in the recruiting trails, not only in Florida, but in the South. Mm-hmm. And four teams uh, from the state of Florida, Adam, obviously made the NCAA tournament, and the University of Florida wasn't one of them. And I imagine expectations would be for the Gators to be in the NCAA tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine that's going to be uh, Cam Newbauer's expectation also. And we watched that press conference together, and, and um, he's an emotional guy. And he didn't hide, hide it at all. And you just got a sense it was it was different. And I think, like I said, it, things need to be different. I talked to Haley Lorenzen, 
um, who's very easy to talk to, by the way. Yes. She she thought it was different too. And she's like, obviously the guy the guy's very emotional. She goes, but she said it's kind of cool that that this guy is willing to to show his vulnerability to mm-hmm. people he doesn't even know right or, you know right away. So uh, to me that sounded really genuine, and maybe they can get a connection going pretty quickly. But this is going to be about relationships uh, both in that building and beyond. And he, he has to go out and get get players and start establishing some base here for success and like he even said get people in the odom yes and he is a he wants to be a ringmaster on on that front he's gonna everybody sees he's gonna invite him he got a congratulatory call from steve spurrier who is a big women's basketball fan he became a huge fan of don staley and her teams up at south mm-hmm. carolina and he said he goes i can't believe steve spurrier called me I mean, the ball coach called me i'm telling but i had to tell him he goes I'm saying I'm sorry now, Coach Spurry, because I'm going to be bothering you to come to our games. So uh, you will hear from me again. <laughs> yes, you know absolutely. So like a a preemptive apology, if you will. So uh, a fresh face, a fresh look, a man coaching women, just a different era of, of women's basketball. And uh, like you said, you know we're closing out one over there on the men's side. Mm-hmm. Exciting to think about what happened this past year and where it's going, and then. On the other side, exciting to think about the new direction and what may come of all that. The news never stops, even when the seasons do. Thank I, you, Chris. I always say the off season is always on. Yes, it is. Thank you very much, Adam. Yes, it is. As Chris and I just discussed, Cam Newbauer is the first male coach in the history of Florida women's basketball. But as you're about to find out, he's defined by much more than that. We had a chance to sit down with the enthusiastic new coach the day after his opening press conference and talked about his life, his path, and what he sees for the future of the program. Yeah, I'm from Fort Wayne, Indiana originally. Grew up for the first 12 years or so in Auburn, Indiana, just a little north of Fort Wayne. My mom was uh, always an administrative assistant, worked in a dentist office, worked for a school system, my father was a manager of uh, North American Van Lines, and they actually ended up getting divorced when I was in third grade, and they both remarried years later, and uh, I've been amazingly blessed with their new spouses of 20-plus years for both, 25 years mm. for both, and uh, my, my dad actually went on and had my two sisters, my stepsisters, with my stepmother, Cheryl. My mom and Bill did not have any children, and then I've got an older brother, Josh, He's three years older than me, so that, that was kind of our family growing up, and Fort Wayne, Indiana was where I ended up going to high school, and then I went to college for one year outside of uh, Detroit for a year and played basketball at a small NAI school, and then uh, transferred back home to IPFW, Indiana, Purdue, of Fort Wayne is what it used to be called, and coached high school my last three years of, of college, and that's kind of where I got the, the coaching bug. So what first got you into it? What made you think, I want to start coaching, especially after you played for your first year in, in college? I had a, a high school coach, middle school coach, mentor, who actually coached at PK Young hmm. um, back in the day down here. Before Bringing it full circle. Before he actually coached me, he had moved down here and coached at PK Young. And so he comes back to, to Leo High School, where I went to school and coached me and had a profound impact on me with the impact he made in my life through the platform of basketball. I'd have to say that that's kind of what really – helped me start to see uh, what working with young people could be like. I had a summer job during college that worked at a youth center where I got to work with children and really enjoyed working with children, being around them, having fun, teaching them, helping them learn and grow as people. And then obviously the basketball bug. Uh, Not really sure when the college part of me came out where I wanted to coach college basketball. 
I think it was uh, probably junior year of college, actually. Coaching is a, a tough profession for a lot of reasons. What was your family's reaction when you made it clear that you wanted to get into coaching? I had crazy dreams to want to be a college Division One basketball player. And it got to a point to where I knew I probably wasn't good enough, but I didn't mind being the towel waver on the end of the bench <laughs> if I could be that guy. And that opportunity never presented itself. I never earned it. Um, just didn't have the opportunity. And so my passion for that dream, it wasn't stifled. It just got transformed into a coaching passion and wanting to live the dreams I had as a player some other way and staying attached to the game. And that's where the passion for, for coaching college basketball came in and keeping the dream alive that I didn't live and just transcending it into another bigger dream, actually. I like to ask people from Indiana this who are into basketball, but where did Bobby Knight fit into this? Like, How important was Bobby Knight as a figure when you're growing up being really involved in the game? I mean, when I grew up, it was Bobby Knight. It was Indiana basketball. Mm -hmm. Indiana-Purdue was a huge rivalry. Um, Digger Phelps was at Notre Dame. Um, Butler was not Butler yet. Um, Rick Majerus was at Ball State. They, oh, wow. almost, they almost beat UNLV <laughs> in the NCAA tournament. Um, so growing up, it was just tremendous state to grow in in terms of basketball and the amount of people that played it, the amount of people that loved it. And, and Bobby Knight was he was he was it mm -hmm. just because of the national stage and and the success they had. So growing up as a kid, uh, Indiana necessarily wasn't my favorite team. I just liked basketball in the state, and so I liked mm -hmm. to watch it all and kind of just enjoyed learning the game from watching such great play in the state. So we talked about when you decided to get into coaching. From that point, tell us about your path, because you have a pretty interesting path in terms <laughs> of when you switched from the men's to the, to the women's side. Yeah, and how I got in was pretty amazing. Um, I was student teaching in college, and I knew that I wanted to coach. And that year, there was a number of turnovers in coaching staffs. And I literally sent out blind letters just telling coaches that I, I will, would give anything to be part of their staff and that I would even scrub toilets. <laughs> I, I literally put that in the letter. And it just so happened that Rob Lanier had just accepted the Siena College coaching job. He was at Texas with Rick Barnes. And they, you know, with Ivy, TJ Ford, James mm -hmm. Thomas, Brandon Mouton. Uh, amazing, amazing team. And he had recruited a ton of those guys. So he gets the Siena job. And I get home from student teaching. And my mom gives me a post-it note. And it says, Rob Lanier, Siena College. And I said, Mom, what, what is this? And she said, he just called. He wants to talk to you about a job. I was flabbergasted because we had just had a conversation two weeks prior to that to where my mom asked the difference between Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, <laughs> And I told her, I said, Mom, I'll explain it to you, but you really don't need to know because I'm not going to be at a Division One right, school. Right. I just, I don't have a big name on my resume. I didn't play major college basketball. It's probably not in the cards for me at this time. And, and oh, me of little faith mm -hmm. is what I learned then. And uh, I called Rob. And he told me he was creating a director of basketball operations position that was strictly voluntary. And I drove out there 12 hours the next, the next, uh, that Friday. One my, way, 12 hours? Yeah, my father and I. Wow. I got done student teaching. Uh, I drove straight home, picked my dad up at about 3.30. We got in the car. We drove all the way to Albany, New York. We got to a hotel at 2.33 in the morning, went to bed, and was on campus at 9 a.m. We got done at 6 p.m. that night, and we drove all the way back. Oof. And uh, that was my first taste of Division One college basketball, what it looks like, what a staff looks like, what the facilities look like. Uh, and I had no idea. I had no <laughs> idea what it was about, what I was getting into. But I fell in love, and I immediately started working them to hire me. I started making newsletters and sending them. Um, my mother is an incredible baker. She even baked her famous cookies and sent it to the coaching staff what, out what there. What kind of cookies are we talking about? Um, chocolate chip oatmeal. 
Oh wow! She makes okay. snickerdoodles. She makes peanut butter. It's like she double makes butterscotch. Cookies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she and she does it right. You know, it's funny when she heard about this. She called me and she says, "Is there anybody I need to send cookies to?" <laughs> <laughs> so I know we're, we're okay now, Ma. We, we got high enough. We don't need that anymore. And uh, after some time, and what was funny was there was a guy on, on Coach Donovan's staff here that was trying to get the job with Rob as well. Hmm. I'll never forget. It was kind of the two of us, and and I was terrified because Billy Donovan's calling for you. Sure, Um, but you you have your mom's cookies. Yeah, right. There's that equalizing factor. And it just so happened that uh, it just the opportunity came to me, and I moved out there and worked for free for two years. Uh, Our second year, I was there. I lived with a 63 year old woman uh, (laughs) to make ends meet. Um, But it's it's what I had to do. Mm -hmm. It's what I had to do to get by, and it's what I had to do to be in this profession. And my first year there, we make the NCAA tournament. We win four games in four days, and we go and we win the playing game. And we play number one seed in the entire tournament, Maryland, uh, in D.C., who won the entire tournament that year. So my first year was a complete godsend in showing me on what can happen. And and it really opened me up to a complete new passion for what it entails and, and what it can become. So uh, just amazing, amazing opportunity. And, and how it played out was incredible. So how did you make ends meet, working for free for two years? I worked summer camps. Once I would go to University of Texas for a couple a couple weeks and work their elite camp, work their overnight camps. I went to Duke, worked their camp. This was back when college coaches could work any camp. So I would go to Eastern Invitational in New Jersey. I would go to Five Star, where all the recruits and people were, and you could actually mm-hmm. get to know players and recruit them as well. And I was kind of a miser with my money. I went out there with X amount of dollars in my bank account, and I never got below that because I, I didn't spend money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was people up there that were gracious enough to provide meals for me and take me in. I did get a meal plan. Norm was the man at Siena. <laughs> he probably still runs the cafeteria today. But he, he, he took care of me with the meal plan, and that's humongous. So I literally ate every meal <laughs> in the cafeteria. And then living uh, with some people where I could live for almost rent-free really helped. Um, but it's what I knew I had to do and never really realized how foolish and ridiculous it was. And you talk to 24-year-olds, 25, 26-year-olds today, and they want the world. They want the sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 job immediately. And, and that's, that's what they want. They don't understand the sweat equity. Mm-hmm. And so me learning that early on and working for those mentors there at Siena really helped pave the way for me into who I was going to become as a person and a coach. And uh, just had no idea what it would turn into. So from there, do you go directly to Georgia, or is there somewhere in between? Um, I had the opportunity to get hooked up with USA Basketball for a month. Hmm. So I spent a month with USA Basketball. Ernie Kent was the head coach. Dennis Felton was the assistant coach. And Ray Harper was the other assistant. And our team was Dee Brown from Illinois, Darren Williams from Illinois. Wow. They had all finished their freshman year. J.J. Reddick from Duke. Ryan Hollins from UCLA, who's been in the league for a long time. And so we spent two weeks in Dallas in training camp. You know, I was, you had those three coaches and then me as a manager slash administrator, whatever they needed me to do, laundry, sure. film, scouting report, copies, pick the guys up, take them to get food, whatever it was. So we spent two weeks in Dallas and then two weeks in Thessaloniki, Greece at the World Championships. Uh, we lost to one team. It was Australia with, with Bogut mm. and Aaron Bruce. And it was, it was just an incredible, incredible experience to be part of USA Basketball. USA Basketball, what they do for our country and our sport is second to none. I mean, there's no other country in the world that can provide the opportunities that USA Basketball does for student-athletes, for sure. And, and obviously the pro-athletes for the Olympians. Mm-hmm. And I get back from that trip, and Dennis Felton had just accepted the Georgia job months before that. And two weeks after I got back, Dennis called and offered me a graduate assistant job. So I literally got back, not even a week after he called, the car was packed up, and I was at Georgia. 
And then I spent a year as a graduate assistant at Georgia with the men. And they have an opening back at Siena as an assistant coach. Mm-hmm. So I pack back up <laughs> and I drive all the way back to Albany, New York. And I'm an assistant coach for one year at Siena. Had a very uh, tough year, very unfortunate set of circumstances. Had some injuries and a ton of freshmen. And we were released after that year. And I was very fortunate that somebody had left the Georgia men's basketball <laughs> staff. And I right went back. back to Georgia as the director of basketball operations for two years. Hmm. And those were the same two years, I believe, that Coach Donovan had this thing rolling. And that was an incredible two years for me to be on the men's side where, with LSU, with, with Tack Minor and Glenn Davis. And mm-hmm. Alabama was really good. Tennessee with Chris Lofton. Mm-hmm. Um, South Carolina. I mean, it was, it was an incredible time for SEC men's basketball. And I just got to know Coach Landers. He was the women's coach who'd been there for forever, one of the pioneers of women's basketball. Got to know him, became really good friends. And he had uh, approached me about just a blind question one day, would you ever want to coach women's basketball? And I, I, I said, no, I, I don't think that's a passion for me. And my sister, who ended up playing at Indiana University, was being recruited. So that kind of helped me learn about the women's game and become more interested when I saw her recruitment. And so then uh, a little while later, a year or so later, Coach Landers had an opening on his staff, and I jokingly said to him, hey, man, you still want to know if I want to coach? And I was kidding. <laughs> he was actually like, yeah, you know what, if you're serious, let's talk. We sat down and talked, and the rest is literally history. You're on Coach Landers' staff at that point. What do you learn from Coach Landers that, that leads you down your path? I learned everything. You're talking about a man of extreme integrity and character and loyalty to his young ladies on that team and to the program and to the University of Georgia and to women's basketball in general. Um, So he helped me kind of learn how to manage myself, uh, my demeanor, um, how to recruit, how to organize recruiting, how to organize practice, how to organize a season, uh, how to game plan strategically, how to scout. So when I say literally everything, I I mean everything. And at the same time, life lessons. I met my wife while I was on his staff and you know, going through the, the process of getting married and starting a family, managing your money. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's just an extremely wise man with all his experience in so many different things, especially as a basketball coach and a person. To work for a Hall of Famer who, who's done what he's done for five years and to have him as a, as a mentor and, and father figure was just uh, incredible. I know you get this question all the time, but what are the differences at that point coaching women as opposed to coaching men? Are there advantages to having a different perspective? How do you sort of view that topic? I think there's definitely advantages. Coaching's coaching, but sometimes I think the relationship piece is a little different. And my personality is more geared for for women's basketball because I'm goofy. I like to have a lot of fun. (laughs) You know, a lot of times guys will look at me and be like, yo, what what are you doing, man? Right. And, you know, I like to have fun on the road. We like to get out and sightsee and see things. I like to take a lot of pictures uh, and just really show our team's personality. You know, us as men, sometimes we're just not into that. And, and some of these men's teams, they just they just want to go, you know, play pro basketball. Right. That's that's kind of sometimes their biggest drive and desire. Whereas um, women's basketball, yeah, we got a lot of, a lot of them that want to play pro basketball and be great. But at the same time, personality and relationship-wise, I think it's a little different. I don't want to say it's more fun, um, mm-hmm. but it's just different, you know, and, and it, it's helped me become a better husband. It's helped me become a better father to my daughters, and uh, I, I couldn't be more thankful. When you get your first head coaching opportunity at Belmont, what was the process like of turning that program around and trying to put your spin on it, doing it for the first time? You always have a vision for your life, 
for what you want to do career-wise, for what you want to do family-wise. And it's no different when you start a program. You have a vision for who you want to try to become. And the vision's not the hard part because you can think pie in the sky and come up with anything you want, all these grandiose ideas. To try to live it and to try to sell it, it was challenging. And to get everybody to buy into it. At Belmont, it wasn't hard to get buy-in from the staff on campus in terms of the administrators, the professors, the faculty. Mm-hmm. It wasn't hard from the athletic department to, to jump on board because you look at what Rick Bird has done there in his 31 years. Uh, it's amazing what he's done. Fifth winningest active coach mm-hmm. in the country right now. And so I knew that it had been done. I knew there was a model there. And he became a, a great mentor for me. And there was so much buy-in from the entire community there to wanting women's basketball to be better. Uh, academics, second to none. Uh, facilities, campus, the city. A lot of parallels with here, if you ask me. Um, now, the city's a little different because it's bigger, but in terms of how great the city is mm-hmm. and the opportunities and the people, it's right on par with here. So all that really helped me see that if we could get people to believe and to incrementally show them what we were trying to do, that it could it could happen. And we did that. You know, Our first year, we go to the championship game of our conference tournament, and then we go to Indiana in the NIT, and we, we have a three rattle out of the rim with six seconds left to win the game. Mm. And, you know, to do that in our first season with players that hadn't chose me, mm-hmm. that just bought into to what we were selling, that was big. Uh, and then we were just blessed recruiting to get people that really were excited to buy into us and what we wanted to do and were excited about Belmont. So it's a lot of similarities with with what we're doing here, with what we want to build here, with uh, the process. I'm a big process guy. You've got to enjoy the process, and that means successes and especially failures. You've got to enjoy the failures. What I mean by enjoy them is, is not have fun with them, but you have to learn from them and know that you're going to have them and know that you have to learn and grow from them because that's what's ultimately really going to make you better. You've talked about this as being a dream come true for you. When did you start thinking about coaching in a place like this, and how did that materialize? <laughs> what's really interesting was I, I never wanted to be a head coach. Really? Yeah, my entire time at Georgia, I did not want to be a head coach. And then I was given the opportunity to go to Louisville. And when I got to Louisville, I didn't want to be a head coach. And I spent uh, 13 months at Louisville. And Jeff Walls brought me in and and really kind of let the reins go and and let me do a little bit of everything. Coach on the court, coach in huddles during games, uh, scout, recruit, you know, just everything. Mm -hmm. But really gave me freedom to kind of see if I knew what I was talking about, if I could convey messages to, to a team in a huddle. Uh, the relationships with the players was probably the biggest thing that gave me confidence to be a head coach. My wife and I just went into that situation with players that we, we knew from recruiting, but we didn't know them real well. And we didn't know them all too well, the current players that they had. So we just kind of made a vow to each other that we were just going to love these kids with all we had and treat them right and, and take care of them and coach them. And um, they accepted us with open arms, and I was just myself. And when I saw some of the impacts I was able to have in a place where I hadn't recruited him, mm-hmm. um, didn't really know him, and just went in and, and was kind of just cam, that it was okay. And that really gave me confidence to see that I, I could impact people if I had the right heart posture to do it for the right reasons and to help them steer them towards their dreams and what they're trying to live. That's what gave me the confidence to be a head coach. So I go to Belmont, and I, I didn't want to be a head coach at a big school. I didn't. Uh, and especially after being at Belmont, I didn't because I loved the feel of the people there. I love the community. I, I love the family feel mm-hmm. with how 
much people cared about us off the court and on the court. People were invested. And so I, I really didn't want to be a, a head coach at a BCS level. Uh, I wasn't sure if you could find that, that same feeling, that same sure. intimate feeling of, of family through a platform of, of college athletics. And then I, I get a phone call. You know, obviously the phone call's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and I know about this place and my experiences being here on the men's side, the women's side, experiencing the fans, the city, um, different people that have been here that I know that were on the men's staff, that were friends of mine. And when I talked to them and, and to hear their passion and the way they speak of this place, it was the way I felt about Belmont and the small school and the, and the family atmosphere. And it, and it shocked me. Mm-hmm. It shocked me to know that um, people could be so invested and, and actually um, – and a lot of times you have there's preconceived notions and judgments that at big schools everybody is just into their own thing and not really um, invested into everybody and all the student athletes and the student body population. When I came down here, I saw it and I felt it immediately. You know, it's what our team yesterday when I met with them talked about too. So it's it's real. So that that was when I really saw that I wanted to be a head coach at, at this place. Mm-hmm. And, and and the other thing was I didn't know if I could you know when you become a head coach. You have uncertainties. Um, it's like with anything else you do in life, any, few, any, any career endeavor you have, and mm-hmm. being a father, being a, a spouse, any of those things. You're never sure until you actually live it and do it. Right. Uh, well, living and coaching the last four years at Belmont gave me extreme confidence, too, that, um, that I think I can do this. I think I can do it at any level because coaching's coaching. Um, my past experience recruiting at Georgia, Louisville, Belmont, uh, the mentors and tutors I've had that have helped teach me and that continue to teach me have helped me see that uh, it's it's a challenge and adventure that I want. And I want to embrace it and try to really build something special here. A big part of that challenge is connecting with the existing players. And you talked about it at Belmont. You had to go in and get them to buy in to you when they did not choose you. So I know that process is literally just beginning right now, but take us through that and what that looks like from your experience. Yeah, it's all about building relationships with them, taking time to get to know them, to listen to them, uh, to learn from them why they chose Florida, besides the obvious reasons that I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to hear from them and, and what they see this program as being right now and, and where we can go. You know, it's, it's, it's a village to raise a program. It takes a village. It's not just, it's not just a head coach, an assistant coach, sports staff, uh, an athletic trainer, or one or two players. It's everybody. Mm-hmm. So it's important to hear what everybody thinks and feels about this place, uh, all the amazing positives and, and some of the deficiencies or concerns that we got to get better in. And that's important because we all are part of this and we all need to put our hands in and go all in and to learn from each other uh, how we can be better. So that's, that's a big part of it, just really building the relationships and having conversations. That's the women's basketball family you're inheriting. You also bring a big family of your own with you. So tell us about the family we got to see during the press conference, and it's going to be moving to Gainesville soon. Yeah, my wife, Sarah, uh, she's from Perry, Georgia, and uh, just absolute amazing, strong woman, um, very driven and, and passionate to, to just love people. Um, and, and you'll sense that, and you'll see that when you, when you meet her and when she's around. And we have two uh, amazing daughters, um, Chloe Joy. Uh, well, she'll turn three on July 30th. And then Millie June will be one on May 3rd. And um, it's just amazing to, to have children and to get to watch them grow and get to have them around our, our program and to see how, how our players are with, with, my, with my children. And 
to watch my players with them and, mm-hmm. and how they respond and how much they mimic what they do and uh, it's just it's just amazing to, to have them around and to be part of this it's 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 really cool Outside of basketball, I know there's not a lot of free time as a head coach. It's a very involved position. But what are some of your interests, some of your passions off the court? My family. Spending as much time as I can with my family. And we like to eat. <laughs> we like uh, great food spots. Um, taking the girls to the park. Taking Frank the Tank to the dog park. Frank the Tank. Yeah, Frank's the man of the house. <laughs> I'll tell it like it is. Very um, Little dog, so Frank the Tank does not do him justice. He's a what, what kind of dog? He's a poodle, but he doesn't look like <laughs> does not look like a poodle. A poodle named Frank the Tank. Yeah, it's the man. I love the irony. It looks uh, it looks kind of like Benji. Do you remember Benji? The old, yeah, yeah. Like kind of raggedy, like Benji. Okay. And, uh, my wife had him before we met, and he's he's the man of the house, and um, he will definitely be a fixture here as well. And um, he might show up at practice occasionally. <laughs> and the family's around, but uh, it's gonna be tough. But I but you know. The family that I leave in Nashville and Belmont, it's, it's never going to leave. Those people, those players, that place is a part of what we do here. They, they've fueled this dream and this passion that I have to build this. So they will never leave me. So what's next? That's the question. We're here on, on day two. Where do you go from here? What are the next steps look like from here? We've got to work. We've got to go to work. We gotta really start building relationships with our players, um, our staff, recruits. Start working. We gotta get in the gym with these players and start working skill wise. Get prepared for the summer. Uh, but we're gonna take it a day at a time. I'm gonna take it a minute at a time, um, and I'm gonna embrace it and enjoy it because this opportunity, people would give anything. There's a lot of people that give anything to be in your chair, mm-hmm. to be here at the University of Florida, and to get to be part of something so much greater than us. And to be part of something so special. So I'm going to enjoy it all in stride. And I know that I'm going to make mistakes. And I know that we're going to have successes. And I'm just going to take it all in stride and do my best to enjoy the moments and to learn from the moments. And to build relationships with people uh, that have helped create this place into such such a special university. And, and for that, I'm excited for, for what's next. Well, Cam, congratulations on getting the job, and we really look forward to what you're going to bring to Gator Nation. Adam, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity, and thank you for all that you've ever done here and, and who you are and, and this podcast, and uh, I just hope that I can make you proud. You're already doing that. Thank <laughs> you very much. Thank you, man. And that's going to do it for today's show. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review to help us continue to grow. We'll be back next week with tons of football content to get you ready for the Orange and Blue debut so you won't want to miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, thanking you for joining us on Gator Tales.